I invite you to turn in the scriptures to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 also. You'll want to have at your disposal the Thin Forms and Prayers book, or you can also navigate to this in the hymnal, to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 22. In the Forms and Prayers book, this is page 223 and 224. Because we're going to make reference to that as we go. As you turn there, I'll note just a few things here. One, you may not have gotten to know during this time, or maybe you did, our sister Abby, who was playing flute this morning. We are grateful for your service as our sister, it appears, is about to finish her time here studying in college and then to go back home. Uh, we have been blessed as a congregation throughout the years in a whole variety of ways musically, and make that something you continue to pray for. We pray for our youth continually that they will, some of them, as God leads, take a great interest in how they can serve the church, not simply to be interesting, certainly it is interesting to play music, but to serve the church as well. Now, this morning, we are in a passage related to the doctrine of resurrection, and the timing is a little bit odd in that we are coming right up on Easter as well in a few weeks. There is no such thing as too much of thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a reason why historically and biblically God's people gather on Sunday. Every single Sunday is an opportunity to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this is also where we are at as we've been moving through key or core doctrines in the Christian faith as summarized in a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, the passage that we are going to be focused on in the scripture this morning is one that was written in the first century. It was a letter written by a man named Paul, a Jewish man who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's writing this letter to a church that he had helped to plant. At the time when he's writing this letter, you'll see this in verse 7, he has been imprisoned. He's been accused of blasphemy by both pagans and by Jews for his Christian beliefs. And, as was common in that time and is still common in some places in the world today, because he was not expressing the same religious beliefs as others, he was accused of basically upending the world. This is going to break down society, and so he has been placed in jail until his trial. That's the context of what we're going to hear, and you can imagine, perhaps, how he feels. With the possibility of death, being cooped up, imprisoned, how might you feel? In that circumstance, how do some of our brothers and sisters feel this very day who are in the same situation? Let's go to the word beginning at verse 19 and we'll see how the apostle is doing. I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me 
you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So remarkable even from the outset to see that when Paul speaks of his desire for deliverance, his primary desire is not to be delivered from physical death. It's to be delivered from the possibility of faltering in his mission. He wants to not cave in to fear. He wants to remain bold. And this is rooted to his hope of resurrection. But let's ask the Lord then to help us experience that same conviction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully in us this morning through your word. Cause these truths to reverberate in us. Grant consolation, deep comfort to any here who have been in sorrow, grief, or anger as they consider what it means to be raised in spirit and body. Lord, we pray that you would please fill us with joy and praise to you through the hope that we have in Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. I know by familiarity with some of you that you have had brushes with death. Some more recently, others perhaps in ways you weren't even aware, but in glory you're going to find out, humanly speaking, you were closer to your own mortality than you even realized. And even if you have not personally come near to death, you have known those who have, and you know those who have passed away. Now, when Paul writes about the likelihood, the possibility of his dying, This is not academic for him, and he's not talking about this like maybe some person who's younger, who has never even known someone who's passed away. Paul knew death intimately. He had been present within literally a stone's throw away when Stephen was killed, when he was bludgeoned to death with rocks for his Christian faith. Paul knew what death looked like and death as a Christian being a reality. Paul himself was on multiple occasions beaten at least one time so badly that he was left for dead. They thought that he was dead. Paul knows more than perhaps all of us here that it may cost him his life to be a Christian. And now at the time when he's writing, he's writing from within imprisonment under another person's authority and power to take his life. How does he feel about this? How would you feel about this? How do you expect other people to feel who are in prison with a sentence possibly of death over them? For many, many people, death, whatever they say about it, when they actually come face to face with it, it's one of, if not the worst things that they can imagine. Because it represents the end of everything good that they have known and everything that they are still hoping for. It is true that there are some people, even non-Christians, who do look forward in a way to death. But often when they are looking forward to death, they are looking forward to some kind of escape, some kind of release from either pain or a sense of purposelessness. Paul has no lack of purpose, even to the very end. You look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. You get the sense that Paul would have been happy to go on laboring if he had no eyes, if he was deaf, if he was limbless, he is going to do what he can with his life. He sees it as full of purpose. God is sovereign over all of it. 
And so he's not looking at death as an escape from purpose. And yet you don't gather at all that Paul is in despair, that he is terrified of death. In fact, you pick up the opposite here. He says in verse 19, I will rejoice. In his present circumstances, he is able to rejoice. Can you rejoice in your present circumstances? You're not even in prison. I'm not in prison. Can you rejoice? Are you rejoicing? Has this week been a week of rejoicing? Is next week going to be a week of rejoicing? Why is Paul able to rejoice here? It's rooted in something. It's not just that he's a different kind of person than you, and you can't let that be the cop-out. Well, some people are just happier. What Paul is talking about here is not just dispositional. It's just, not just personal. It's rooted in the doctrine of resurrection. The doctrine of resurrection is as core to Christianity as the Trinity or the cross. You don't have Christianity without it. The doctrine of resurrection affords him an incomparable comfort. And by the Holy Spirit, it should do the same for us in a growing way. And so this morning, the Holy Spirit is calling to you to understand and to appropriate, to lay hold of this doctrine of resurrection in order that you might draw comfort from it. As we look at this doctrine, we're going to do so under two main headings. We're going to look first at what it means for our comfort in relation to our spirit. But then, of course, being resurrection, we also have to look at what it means in terms of drawing comfort related to our bodies. And so I'll announce each of those as we come to them again. But do bear in mind something. When I say that the doctrine of resurrection is related to comfort, what does comfort mean? I think that for all of us, that is a word which is best experienced Harder to explain, because it has a lot of different aspects to it. But basically, it's a sense of relief or release or satisfaction or even delight and pleasure. You go from something to comfort, and you know it. It's kind of the feeling of moving from hot, hot heat outside, and you come into a room that's just the right temperature. That's nice. I've moved into something out of something else. Our catechism, the Hutterberg Catechism, has been described at times as the catechism of comfort. Many catechisms have been written to uh, summarize the Christian faith. But of all of them, the catechism that we use, the Heidelberg, is called the catechism of comfort. Maybe you're aware, the very first question and answer is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It's oriented to that sense of relief that exists through faith in Christ. You may not be aware, however, that in the Catechism, the word comfort only occurs four times. Twice in Lord's Day 22. Twice in relation to the doctrine of resurrection. And if you go back to Heidelberg 1 and to the other source, all the times that comfort is described, it's connected to resurrection. Why is that? We're going to see why that is. Beginning at this, take comfort in what the doctrine of resurrection means concerning your spirit. And the spirits of others, as many as believe in Jesus Christ. We have to start here. Because the doctrine of resurrection is not just about the body. A body without a spirit is not life. It begins at the spirit. Now spiritually, according to the Bible, how do we all start out? According to the Bible, 
all sinners begin in a state that is spiritually dead. Now, I do not mean unconscious. Clearly, you're awake, you're alive. But spiritually, in terms of your relationship with the Lord, there is a separation, an alienation, a principle of corruption that the Bible describes as spiritual death. And just as the dead physically can't, say, reach out and grab something, so those who are spiritually dead cannot, will not, ever desire life in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. There he is speaking to Christians and saying, You were dead. That's what you were. But then the miracle that Christianity tells us of is that God works in you something akin to resurrection. It is a resurrection. It's not a metaphor. God transforms the soul from within. So I want to underscore that, by the way. What it means to be a Christian is not to adopt a way of life and then you get coaching from the Bible. It is to go from being spiritually dead and then God outside of you does something from within and brings you to life. Not dissimilar to when Jesus says to Lazarus in the tomb, Lazarus, come forth! Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says this very plainly. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. A little bit earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul says that he's praying that these Christians would have an enlightening in their hearts, that they would understand something. So in some sense, he's saying they're Christians, but they're darkened about certain things. And he says, I'm praying that God would help you to understand the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you. God has begun a resurrection in you beginning in your spirit. Now, why does that matter? Because according to the Bible, that new work cannot die. If it could die, that would not be such good news. But hear what it says, for instance, 1 Peter 1, verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, he says, flesh is like grass. It dies, it goes away. But that work which God worked in you through faith in the gospel is imperishable. It will not die. Revelation 20 speaks of the first resurrection. And the first resurrection is speaking of that which was spiritual first, preceding the second resurrection of our bodies. And it says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. What do you do with this doctrine? How does this give you comfort? If you have been brought to life in Jesus Christ, 
and your spirit cannot die again, then it means that whenever you pass from this mortal life, when your body gives way, when it goes the way of grass and fades, you don't have to fear that your spirit is going to cease to exist or go into an unhappy existence. You have already entered into life, and it only gets better from there. Look at verse 21, these simple words. To die is gain. Can you say that honestly? I struggle sometimes when I'm not looking at the truth of the word. I feel like if I die right now, I'm going to miss out on some things I want to experience. And it's true, humanly speaking, I would. But that doesn't, just because you miss out on certain things doesn't mean it's loss. This is comparative. To die is gain. Death becomes a departure into something even better. What is better for the believer in terms of our hope of what's to come? Why is it that the Christian can look forward to something beyond this physical life that's better than what any unbeliever will ever experience in this world? You could put it negatively. You could put it positively. Negatively, think about what you will no longer be dealing with. And that that state is going to endure forever. Because this life cannot die. You will no longer be struggling with your sins. I want to disabuse some of you younger ones here. Maybe people have come to faith recently. And then if you don't believe me when I say it, then maybe speak with somebody a lot older in our church. Growing older, time passing as a Christian, does not mean that your struggles with sin stop. They change. But your hatred of sin, if you're actually growing, increases. And so even if you are acting out less in a way that people see, you're more discontent with your sin. The person who has entered into life has the assurance that when they pass out of this life, they are brought into glory. They are united with Jesus Christ. They enter paradise. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Free of the struggle with temptation that's clinging in you. It's just a barb in you. Gone. Think of the comfort, the release of that. And even now you draw comfort knowing that as you struggle with sin, you say to yourself, Christ is raised. I will not always struggle with this. So I can fight it. Because if you're fighting and you think it lasts forever, you are going to be, it's impossible. But if you're fighting and you say this is an end, you keep fighting. Also, physical pain and emotional torment will come to an end. Think of some of the regrets that you bring to the Lord, but the devil brings them back. Think of guilt you have over things. You know that you're forgiven by God, but you can't change the consequences of what you did. And it hurts. But we cannot imagine heaven. We cannot imagine paradise where the Lord does not bind up the brokenhearted. And so there is going to be a wiping of all tears. Think of the sorrow that you may carry or that others carry deep in their hearts over, say, the passage of children or other loved ones. God knows how to comfort us. It's good in many ways that in this life you have a taste of the pungency of what sin does, that this world is broken. But when we have learned and have comforted others in all the ways appropriate to this life, the Lord is not going to leave you in pain forever. And so those are all negatives, things that you're done with. The physical suffering, the emotional suffering, the struggle with sin. 
the being done with toil, going to your rest. But then positively, we have to put it positively, because this isn't just becoming unconscious. This is not soul sleep. A fake doctrine have nothing to do with it. Today you will be with me in paradise. Positively, it means uninhibited enjoyment and communion with God in Christ. None of us have any idea what that's like. We have only experienced inhibited communion. Try, sometime this week, I encourage you, try, get down, if you haven't done this before, try to pray for 30 minutes straight with focus and delight in the Lord. It is so hard, so hard, even knowing everything we know about the Lord, to delight in him. That's not because he's lacking in goodness. It's because we're just so calloused. It's like wearing a big catcher's mitt and trying to feel things. It's not that there's no texture. It's that you are numb. That mitt is going to be taken off and you with your whole spirit in some way that the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. We don't know. God knows. You are going to gaze in a spiritual sense upon the spiritual qualities of God. And David says, one thing have I desired. This was a king, by the way, who had access to anything he wanted in the world. David says, one thing have I desired, to gaze upon your beauty in the temple. And there he means moral beauty, first and foremost. To delight in what is good and holy. And to have that in the presence of God's people. Romans 4 verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, he doesn't mean that those first things don't have any place. He's saying what makes eating, drinking, etc. delightful, ultimately, is union with the Lord and his people. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Paul can say in verse 23 of our text, Philippians 1, my desire to depart and be with Christ, or that is my desire, for that is far better. That is for his own sake. If he's only looking to what would benefit him, that is far better. The Lord then, the Holy Spirit this morning is working in you to learn as a habit to draw comfort when you think about what resurrection means for your spirit. When you are in the midst of toil, like Paul was toiling, when you are in the midst of physical pain, when you are in the midst of being despised by people, you say, my spirit is going to be very well. But that's not the whole of the doctrine of resurrection. And it says we might say that's not the half of it. Resurrection as a Christian doctrine is inseparable from the resurrection of the body as well. And this brings us to our second main heading. I mentioned also at the outset that I draw your attention to our catechism, to the words that it says in question and answer 57. I invite you to look with me at that. If you don't have a copy handy, simply listen carefully. This is what we confess as a church and what we have confessed for centuries and centuries and centuries with other Christians and what the Bible has declared forever. This is our second main division to think about how we draw comfort from what resurrection means for our bodies. Question and answer 57 on page 223 and 224. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ, its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, 
will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. I don't know if you appreciate how distinct this is as a Christian doctrine. It was not a hope in the world at the time when the covenant people were declaring it. This was not the belief of pagan Greeks. It was not the belief of the Egyptians that our bodies would be raised in the future. For most people, the idea of bodily resurrection is an afterthought or undesirable because they imagine it wrong, not the way the Bible lays it out, and they don't understand the purpose of our bodies as instruments for glorifying God in a whole array of arenas. Most of the world has held a hope that if there is anything beyond this life, it's some kind of nebulous spiritual existence. If that were all that the Lord gave you, that itself would be grace, and that in many ways would be very good. We've already seen that. But the Bible goes much further. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are the most miserable people. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then that would mean that the sign of God's curse upon sin has not been lifted. Concerning all of humanity, it says in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. God told Adam, in the day that you eat, you shall die. Partake of that which was forbidden. You shall die. Christ's resurrection signals to us that God has brought about salvation for those united with Christ. But even beyond that, there is everything that it means for us to enjoy life in that fashion. Now, where are we getting this from? From many places in the Bible, but looking in Philippians, look with me at chapter 3, and you'll see Paul draws attention to this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, how striking, even as he is imprisoned for accused disloyalty to Rome. Does that make him a bad citizen of the kingdom? No. In fact, at other times, he very much flies the flag of the fact that he's a Roman citizen. But the world does not always understand how a Christian can have dual citizenship. And they would prefer that your citizenship be first to them. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The Bible does not tell us all that we might be curious about concerning what that means. It does give us some analogies that are faithful, but still enigmatic. Analogies like, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes the difference between a seed and then a great tree. And that our body in this life is by comparison the seed, and what we shall be will be like this tree. Now, that's not saying we're going to be children. That doesn't mean we're going to be bigger per se. It means that there's a glory that exceeds when you just look at the seed, it looks so plain, so weak. Then you look at the tree and it's glorious. And what we shall be, we have not even understood. One writer has said that 
God in this age, it's like a father giving a child a, a small pony to ride on before mounting the Clydesdale. And God has allowed us in this age to experience a body which is good, which reflects his purpose and image in different ways, but which doesn't hold a candle to what we shall be. It is suggestive in the Gospels when you look at the descriptions of Jesus after his resurrection. Much could be made there, and some of it is speculative. Again, I said suggestive. He sits at table to eat. He seems to pass through walls. It suggests that locality will be something that we relate to differently. That is exciting, whatever that means. To be able to be with who we want, when we will. But even then, the fact that we'll never die means we have plenty of time to travel. Another analogy that the Bible uses is the difference between going from a tent, say made of canvas, to a temple made of stone. Who does not, at some point, begin to very much identify with that? That we are canvas, we are wearing out. And then to think to go to something permanent where death cannot touch you. There will be strength without wrath or temper. Beauty without lust or age or envy. There will be food, it seems. Jesus eats after he's raised. And yet no fear of, say, all of the suffering that often attends it. You have people allergic to practically everything. I can't imagine that will continue. Or hunger or want. For God to give us back the world in a way where we can enjoy it forever with him. A way more glorious that defies our best comprehension. Think of the way that this will bless those who suffer, say, with severe neurological conditions. Those who through, uh, this is a, we could spend a long time here and we won't, but it is suggestive. When Christ is raised, he's raised in an identifiably male body. Think about that for a moment. It is suggestive that we will retain the identity that God purposed for us when he gave us our souls. That he will resolve all questions that somebody may have had by dint of physical deformity. And of one kind or another, think of the person born limbless. Think of the person or people born conjoined. God is able to do what is beyond us. Tremendous comfort in the resurrection. It's not just this idea of our spirits. That's great for you to think about when you're not the one with the physical suffering going on. I've mentioned to people before, I don't want to uh, drag it out so much, but this, this is where I minister from. Many of you know. My dad, we used to backpack together. He has an advanced disease. He's paralyzed on one side of his body. When I see him most joyful, it's when he's talking about the resurrection. Because he believes it. And you need to believe it, not just for yourself, but to minister to others who see you pass through these things. You, if God grants you any time, you're going to pass through these things. And you need this doctrine so deep in you that, like a grape, when you crush it, the juice comes out. When you get crushed, out comes praise and faith in the resurrection. You need that. It's not academic, merely. What more could be said of it? Look with me at question and answer 58, which tells us we will not get to the bottom of it. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 58. 
How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. We say, even as I have begun, even now, to experience this eternal joy, I want to put it to you as a question as we move to conclude. Have you begun to experience this joy of everlasting life? I'm not asking, do you feel it at every moment equally? But have you tasted of that, a sincere anticipation that brings about real delight as you imagine what the Lord has in store for you? If you have, that is a work of the Holy Spirit, and that is to be cultivated. That's the light we walk in. That upholds us in the midst of so many trials, preserves us in the face of temptation, even as Paul desires to be delivered. He keeps his eye on what is ahead. If you have not, then I want to appeal to you. Nothing naturally available in this world can rival the joy that belongs to Christians, tasted in part now, but lasting forever in the age to come. This same Paul says in chapter 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is, however the Lord wants to bring me there, I'll take it, if that's the way of faith, and it's worth it to me. How did he lay hold of this? He says, not by works done under the law, not by becoming more and more faithful to the Lord, and now he says, you're good enough, I accept you. He says, by faith, having a righteousness which is from God through faith. And faith, that's the declaration in the gospel, that faith is taking God up on his promises, believing in his generosity in Jesus Christ, and that he will and has and shall provide everything necessary for your salvation. If you have not believed, you stand at the edge of your own death. No one can promise you another minute or day. God, in his grace, tends to grant a long, relatively speaking, time But today is the day of salvation. He calls you to believe upon him, to repent and believe on Christ. And he receives us. But having believed, as I trust many, if not all here have, I appeal to you, take active comfort, give active comfort out of the resurrection. Not out of platitudes, not out of, you know, somebody is suffering some way and it's so natural to say, well, it could be worse. Instead, perhaps say it's going to be better. It's going to be better. Whatever it was, forget about it and put your eyes back on the promises given to you. 
As Paul goes through his toil, it means for him that it serves a purpose, even if the purpose is simply to show what's possible through faith, to persevere and not complain against the Lord. Through all loss, when we face the loss in this life, the departure of a fellow believer. I experienced that recently, you may be aware. My mom passed away the day after Christmas. And there were some people who came up to me and understood they wanted to console me. And at the same time, I could tell that some people were pretty cagey about it. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to touch a nerve. That makes sense. But the reality is Christians don't mourn as the world. While my mom was alive, she was suffering physically and mentally. She had Alzheimer's. When my mom passed... I have no reason to doubt she was a believer. One of the last things we got to do is rejoice in the very words of Heidelberg 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? She's doing far better. She's doing far better. And for those of us, as we think back on people we loved that were partners in the faith, far better. But what about the person that we fear was not a believer? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And we know that he will do good. Part of that goodness is to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In the end of Revelation, it says he'll dry every eye. I don't know precisely how. What I know is the certainty. And you must embrace that. In the resurrection, your grief will be put to death forever. The Lord is granting this to us who believe. May I encourage you then, apply it to one another. Before doing that, you must apply it to yourself. Let's ask the Lord to help us with that even now. Heavenly Father, it's a daunting thing to have a brush with death. And all around us, we see the effects of the fall. We ask that you would give us eyes through faith to look upon our own departure as an entrance into life, that you would please, in the midst of our sometimes heavy temptation and affliction and our sense of endless toil in our jobs, with our families, or in any other circumstance done in your name, that you would give us a renewed sense of comfort and expectation. It is worth it. Renew us, Lord, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.